the weather is good, I bicycle to First Parish in Cambridge from my home in North Cambridge. And when it's not, I almost always take the tea. But this morning I had to deliver my daughter Lucy to a, a play date, and so we drove through Harvard Square uh, on the way to her play date and uh, coming down Garden Street past the old burying ground, I stopped at the light and, and looked to the right and I saw walking down the sidewalk and a tall elderly gentleman slightly stooped with age and he was picking up litter, all the pieces of litter that he saw. And of course that was Ernie Kerwin because that's because that's what Ernie does. And it's not as easy for him to bend over as it used to be. So uh, I pointed him out to my daughter and she, being a material girl, said we should pay him. <laughs> and I explained that he wouldn't accept the money because that's who Ernie is. He wants to pick up litter he wants to leave a place more beautiful than he found it. And I think he's shaking my fig, fig, his, his finger at me to stop talking about it. Thank you. He said he wants to leave it better for someone else following him. And so you have, and so you will, Ernie. Thank you. Last week, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration confirmed that this past summer was the hottest in the history of the planet. Six of the first eight months of 2015 set global heat records. For 366 consecutive months, dating back to 1985, the global temperature has exceeded the 20th century average. This comes as no surprise to the people of Karachi, who last June endured temperatures as high as 120 degrees Fahrenheit. 2,000 people died in southern Pakistan, as well as countless animals. Heat stroke victims were turned away from hospitals, while putrescent corpses overflowed the morgues, filling the streets with the stench of death. Meanwhile, Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump dismisses global warming as a hoax. President Obama rails against climate change while opening the Arctic to further oil drilling. But if all the world's fossil fuel deposits are burned, scientists announced this month, the world's oceans will rise over 200 feet, submerging the entire east coast of the United States, as well as London, Paris, Buenos Aires, Beijing, and Tokyo. At long last, the world's religions are beginning to awaken to the climate challenge. Listen to this joint statement by religious leaders. Global warming is predicted to increase temperatures worldwide, changing climate patterns, increasing drought, threatening agriculture, and creating millions of environmental refugees. 
We, re we reaffirm in the strongest possible terms the indivisibility of social justice and ecological integrity. Economic equity, racial justice, gender equality, and environmental well-being are interconnected and all are essential to peace. To help ensure these, we pledge to mobilize public opinion and to appeal to elected officials. We dare not let our resolve falter. The statement was signed by the heads of major Christian denominations and prominent ministers, priests, and rabbis. Inspiring words. And they would be even more inspiring had they not been published in 1991, nearly a quarter century ago. Pope Francis' encyclical on climate, Laudato Si, is also inspiring. But as Pope Francis himself understands, it is not self-executing. It must be leveraged into political change. Jesus of Nazareth charged his followers to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. As people of faith concerned about climate, we've got the harmless as doves part down pretty good. Our opponents have been serpentine. The Koch brothers bankroll the Tea Party. The Tea Party rocks the Republican establishment and floods Congress and state legislatures with climate deniers, dooming any chance for climate action adequate to the crisis. People of faith, by and large, ban styrofoam from coffee hour, change our light bulbs, upgrade our boilers, hold Earth Day services, and have some really excellent ecology curricula for children's religious education. Some of our houses of worship even have solar panels on the roof. All virtuous, all helpful, all harmless as doves. Personal and congregational responsibility is essential, but it's not enough. It will never shift the balance of power from corporate domination to authentic democracy. It leads us away from confrontation with what St. Paul called the powers and principalities and towards an ethos of personal purity. A century ago, the social gospel movement challenged Christianity's obsession with personal redemption. It called Christians to work not only for their individual salvation, but also for the collective social redemption of communities plagued by poverty, disease, and discrimination. Two years ago last June, led by our Environmental Justice Task Force, this congregation, by unanimous vote, divested from fossil fuels. We hoisted a banner over our entrance, tweaking our neighbor across the street. We divested from fossil fuels, it boasts, your turn, Harvard. Last year, I helped negotiate the divestment resolution, subsequently passed by the Unitarian Universalist Association. I preached divestment, I practiced divestment, and during Harvard Heat Week last spring, with hundreds of students and alumni, I risked going to jail for divestment. Unfortunately, the Harvard administration was too savvy to arrest us. But as religious activists, we cannot stop at divestment. 
If we stop at divestment, divestment becomes yet another posture of moral purity. We must move from divestment into political action to defeat the fossil fuel industry, even as divestment weakens and discredits it. Last spring, I was speaking with a dynamic young pastor of a mid-sized Unitarian Universalist church in an affluent town not far from here. Her congregation has done everything they can to green their church. Energy audits, lighting, insulation, solar panels. The church parking lot is filled with Priuses. <laughs> they don't know what to do next, she lamented. They don't know what to do next. That's a tragedy. There's a bill in the legislature right now to divest the Commonwealth from fossil fuels. There's a bill for a revenue-neutral carbon fee and rebate. There's a bill for property-assessed clean energy, or PACE, that would immediately finance renewable energy efficiency and conservation upgrades to buildings through an assessment added to the property tax, stretching out payment over decades and making these improvements broadly affordable. And now there's a broad-based statewide coalition called Mass Power Forward, demanding policies favoring renewable energy, reducing dependence on fossil fuels and nuclear power, prohibiting subsidies for gas pipelines, and supporting a green economy. Prayer is not going to enact these policies. Personal purity is not going to enact these policies. Only political activism can enact these policies. Religious political activism is the sleeping giant of the climate justice movement. People of faith understand the moral imperative of climate justice. Every religion forbids theft. Thou shalt not steal. The eighth of the Ten Commandments received by Moses from God in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, sacred to Jews as the Torah and to Christians as the Old Testament, sacred also to Muslims as people of the book, thou shalt not steal. Climate change is theft. It steals from our own children and from the most vulnerable people on the planet. Every religion commands us to care for creation. Climate change desecrates creation. Every religion calls us to protect and care for the weak and the vulnerable. Climate change devastates the weak and the vulnerable. One of Jesus' best-known parables is the story of the Good Samaritan in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Jesus tells of a traveler who was beaten, robbed, and left half dead by the side of the road. A priest and a Levite pass by without aiding him, but then a Samaritan rescues him. Who is our neighbor? The parable demands. Today, the victim by the side of the road is the Bangladeshi who loses his family in a flood the teenager on the island nation of Tuvalu who has to flee her homeland before it is inundated by rising seas, the 85-year-old African-American grandmother in Chicago who dies in a heat wave. All these, Jesus would say, are our neighbors.
Imagine if people of faith took our prayers for climate justice out of our houses of worship and into the voting booth, into the legislative councils, into the corridors of power. Imagine if we identified the highest policy priorities for climate justice, town by town, county by county, state by state, organized around them, testified for them, and lobbied for them until they became law. Imagine if we educated people of faith about the climate crisis, the policy responses we need, and which politicians support or obstruct them. Imagine if people of faith arose as a powerful political force for climate justice. That's the vision of the Creation Coalition. I really wasn't sure if I should preach about the Creation Coalition this morning. After all, the Creation Coalition is why I'm leaving First Parish. It's the dream that poked me, provoked me, pulled me from sleep, and finally compelled me to make the painful choice between pursuing the dream and continuing to serve this church as senior minister, because I could not do both. Since my leaving First Parish is a sensitive point, and for some a sore point, I thought maybe it would be insensitive to talk about the Creation Coalition this morning. But so many of you have asked me about it. And when I, when I met with the young adult group a few weeks back, one of them thanked me for talking about it because it helped her understand that my decision to leave is based on a, an actual plan, that it is, and I'm paraphrasing here, a thing. <laughs> so our plan is to launch the Creation Coalition as a new interfaith nonprofit 501c3 educational organization with a paired 501c4 in the wings ready to endorse candidates for election. We want to use state-of-the-art grassroots organizing, data gathering, and communications tools to grow a community of religious activists who will spring into action when alerted to pack a hearing room, show up at a constituent meeting, bird dog a candidate, or flood a legislator's office with phone calls. If we get enough funding, we'd love to plant the Creation Coalition in a half dozen states to start. Red states, blue states, purple states, and start to take back school boards, city councils, county commissions, and state legislatures from politicians either ideologically opposed to climate action in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry or both. We've been told that the Creation Coalition is likely to attract funding and we have promises of introduction to decision makers in major foundations. But if we don't get generous foundation support, we'll work to organize the Creation Coalition right here in Massachusetts, congregation by congregation, synagogue by synagogue, sangha by sangha. In any event, watch for a crowdfunding campaign this fall. Now, the Environmental Justice Task Force here at First Parish in Cambridge has led and supported many efforts to influence city, state, and federal policy. How much more impact could we have if there were consistent and strategic statewide coordination of faith-based climate advocacy? And I know some of you hear Creation Coalition and think creationism, but for Christians, creation care is a familiar term 
for faith-based environmental activism. Will we make mistakes? Absolutely. We'll learn from them, pick ourselves up, and keep going. In the words of the immortal Babe Ruth, it's hard to beat someone who never gives up. It's time to prove to the politicians that religious voters care as much about climate as they do about family values. Indeed, that climate is a family value. As a religious leader, I never want to appeal to fear. But I want politicians to fear the consequences of climate denial and climate obstruction, and right now, they rarely do. There's a difference between grandeur and grandiosity. Grandeur is wondrous and magnificent. Grandiosity is egotistical and impractical. Needless to say, I hope the vision of the Creation Coalition is grand rather than grandiose. But I confess I sometimes daydream of a phone conversation between a legislator and David Koch. I'd really like to vote with you on this, Mr. Koch, says the legislator, but if I did, the Creation Coalition would take me out in the primary. <laughs> we can dream, and we can act. Mother Teresa famously and beautifully said, God does not call us to be successful. God calls us to be faithful. When it comes to climate justice, may we be faithful and successful. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.